Well, we're going to go ahead and we're going to be getting into our second study tonight in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, of course, last week we went over um, actually the section of Scripture um, that comes immediately before that of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, the Sermon on the Mount makes up Matthews 5 through 7. It is the first discourse uh, within the Gospel of Matthew. Um, but the section that precedes it, okay, Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, we saw last week that that section very much serves as a transition into the first of Jesus' main teachings during his earthly ministry, which is, of course, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so verses 23 through 25 of Matthew chapter 4 very much serves as a transitional uh, section uh, of scripture, if you will. Um, it certainly speaks of the very beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry when he first started out and he went out into uh, the towns and villages in Israel and whatnot. Um, he first went through Galilee, okay, which was his hometown. And he was teaching first in where? Does anyone remember? Where did he start teaching first? Right, the synagogues, that's right. He first started teaching in the synagogues, which were, of course, as we talked about last week, Jewish-led primarily. Um, it was led primarily of those of the Jewish ethnic heritage. Um, and he was preaching the good news of what? Anyone remember? The kingdom. That's right, the good news of the kingdom. We read that within verse 23 of Matthew chapter 4. And so he started out in the synagogues preaching to the Jewish people, okay? And he was preaching them the good news of the kingdom of God. And we talked about how this was all intentional. It was intentional that he started first in the synagogues preaching to the Jews. And it was intentional that his message started with the good news of the kingdom. And that is because the coming of Jesus and his earthly ministry in general was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Okay, that for the most part started in the book of Genesis and went through all of the major and minor prophets talking about how from the Jewish line, okay, from the descendants of Abraham, there would one day be a ruler, a king who would come forward, who would spring out, okay, uh, from the root of Jesse. And of course, Jesse, David's father, was from the line of Abraham. And this Messiah, this king, would serve as a blessing to, was it just the Jewish people? It was all nations, all nations in the world would be blessed through your line, Abraham. That's what God told Abram within Genesis chapter 12 when he first gave the first uh, proclamation of this, okay? And so through the Jewish line, there would become uh, a, a, a kingdom, a kingdom that would come from the Jewish line. There would be a king who would arise, who would one day rule and reign on earth, who would serve as a both spiritual and earthly blessing to all the inhabitants of the world, and he would again come from a Jewish line, from a Jewish heritage. And so when Jesus first started his earthly ministry in 
Galilee, he was telling the Jews, hey, the kingdom of heaven is imminent, it's near. In fact, it's here right now, okay? That which was prophesied about is about to take place on this earth. I am he, the one who has come from the Jewish line, the Messiah that was prophesied about, who is here to establish a kingdom of God on earth where all nations would be blessed. But that didn't just happen right away. The earthly kingdom of God, as we learned last week, was not immediately established on earth when Jesus came. And the reason why is because the Jews rejected their Messiah. And we read a lot about this within the book of Romans, particularly in Romans chapter 11, where Paul mourns for the fact that his people, you know, Paul was from the Jewish heritage, he mourns for the fact that his people, okay, have rejected their king. And so Paul clarifies the Jews have been set aside for a period of time right now during the church age until the full number of who come in? The Gentiles, until the full number of the Gentiles comes in, and then all Israel will be saved, and then, as we read within the pages of Revelation, the Lord will return on earth, the Jews will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn, they will get saved, and Jesus will come down, and he will rule and reign on earth for 1,000 years from the Mount of Zion, and then subsequently, of course, he will establish a new heaven and a new earth. So one day, the earthly consummation of the kingdom of God will occur. It didn't occur when Jesus first came, during his first coming, because again, the Jews rejected their Messiah. And so Jesus then extended his plan to bring the Gentiles in. But spiritually, as we learned last week, the kingdom of heaven has been commenced. Okay, And I'm not going to go through all the details as to why that is. We certainly looked at uh, the book of Joel, Joel chapter 2, and we read about how the Spirit of God has already been poured out upon this earth right now. Um, Peter certainly confirmed that in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2 during the day of Pentecost. He quoted from Joel chapter 2. He quoted that prophecy. And if you look through Joel chapter 2, again, you'll see the first half, or at least the beginning of that prophecy in Joel 2, has commenced. The Spirit has been poured out. Spiritually, the kingdom of heaven is here. Um, but when it comes to the more earthly aspect of the kingdom of heaven, when the Lord does come down with his rule and reign, that is yet to occur. But spiritually, we learned last week the kingdom of heaven is here. And we learned that that is very pertinent and important to our interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason why is because the Sermon on the Mount is, in essence, kingdom ethics that members of the kingdom of God are to live out wherever they are. Okay, the kingdom ethics within the Sermon on the Mount do indeed apply to us today because the kingdom of God is here and those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ have been incorporated into that kingdom. Spiritually, the kingdom is here, but we're waiting for the day when Jesus returns during his second coming and he establishes his kingdom fully on earth forever. So with that in mind, we're going to go ahead and we will be getting into the actual Sermon on the Mount today when it comes to the Beatitudes. Um, but I first want to talk a little bit about where we are right now, all right, when it comes to the field of biblical studies in relation to the Sermon on the Mount. Within the 1920s, there was a German Bible scholar by the name of Hans Windisch, okay, and he wrote an 
published a book uh, that was titled The Meaning of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, and within this work, he put the authenticity, the authenticity of the Sermon on the Mount into great question, and a great majority of biblical scholarship since then has followed suit after the proposals um, that uh, were made by Windish back at that time. We are at a point now where a majority within biblical scholarship regard the famous discourse in Matthew as a collection of shorter and isolated sayings of which Jesus which uh, which Jesus gave on various separate occasions, okay? In other words, uh, the author of this gospel had access to multiple sayings that Jesus presented on multiple occasions, okay? And he compiled them all together as if Jesus taught all of these things on one occasion and in one sermon, all right? Some even within more conservative Bible seminaries have actually gravitated towards this particular view. Okay, that Matthew uh, took many different sermons, many different uh, sayings uh, and teachings of Jesus and attempted to compile them all and present them as one sermon that Jesus gave on one particular occasion. But unfortunately, I think we could all agree, at least me certainly, I have big problems with such an idea. Okay, since it unfortunately said, sheds a very poor light on the trustworthiness of the scriptures. Okay, that whole concept, all right, that Matthew simply took a compilation of different separate sayings of Jesus that he gave at different periods during his ministry. And Matthew sort of compiled all these different separate sayings of Jesus and formulated one sermon out of them and presented them to us in his gospel as if Matthew, um, as if Jesus gave all of these sayings at one particular event and in one sermon, okay? Um, that is suggesting then that Matthew was utilizing more artistic articulation, okay, when he was writing down and jotting the different details of the gospel account. And so that would be, in a sense, a rhetorical device, okay, the, uh, the, the author of Matthew, Matthew, he, he took uh, the different sayings of Jesus, multiple different sayings, and he presented them as if they were one specific sermon that Jesus gave on one particular occasion, the Sermon on the Mount. If we can't trust that the Sermon on the Mount was indeed an actual sermon, okay, given by Jesus on a particular event, on a particular given day, as Matthew presents to us within his gospel, then, you know, what else in Matthew can't we trust? Okay, this is what's so difficult about these redaction critics. The idea that the Bible was written, you know, and, and was compiled and, and sectioned off in a number of different areas, and, and they all tried to put it all together to make it one cohesive story, and they borrowed from Near Eastern literature, and they did all this and that, and they tried to make a narrative out of it. That is what the redaction critics suggest, and they are certainly looking at the Bible with a skeptical lens. And so people who are inclined to accept the redaction criticism view of the Sermon on the Mount are also the ones who are usually more inclined, okay, to question the dating of the book of Matthew and also its authorship. 
My point here in saying all this is if you start to question one aspect of Scripture and you start to look at one section of Scripture with a skeptical lens, what happens then is you might get tempted to and you might feel more inclined to look at other sections of Scripture with a more skeptical lens, including some of the more important sections of Scripture. Of course, all Scripture is important, but there are certain key aspects of Scripture that some people would like to look at with a skeptical lens. The resurrection being one, and a number of other areas that are pertinent to our faith. Creation is one of those, and many other things. But hopefully all of us here today are not among those who are more inclined, okay, to question the validity of what the scriptures present to us throughout the entire Bible. And the Bible speaks for itself, and we have to understand if you have faith, that the Bible is truly the word of God, then you'll have faith in its claims and the different details that are articulated to us within the scriptures. And we have to look at the discourses of Matthew. We have to understand that all five of Matthew's discourses, the Sermon on the Mount being the first one, are marked with both introductory and concluding remarks. Okay, there are five discourses in total within Matthew. Of course, the first one is the sermon, Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, the second discourse is Matthew chapter 10. The third discourse is in Matthew chapter 13. That's been, uh, that's been come to known as the parabolic discourse because he goes over the parables in Matthew 13. Um, and then in Matthew chapter 18, you have the fourth discourse of Matthew. And then the fifth discourse is a very famous one, or one of the more famous discourses. That's Matthew. 23 through 25, which is the Olivet Discourse, which we studied a little bit when we had our eschatology study uh, months ago. But when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, again, we have to have faith in the scriptures and we have to really grasp the fact and consider the fact that Matthew is indeed presenting this sermon to us as if it was one particular sermon that Jesus indeed gave on one particular occasion. He sets this up. If you look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, okay, he opens up the Sermon on the Mount with an introduction, okay, in narrative form. We read, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, and then of course we get into the Beatitudes. And then if you turn the page of your Bible, uh, a page or two or a couple of pages, You'll see in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of Matthew 7, when the Sermon on the Mount is finished, when the final monologue of the sermon is finished, it is then followed by a concluding remark, which is again in narrative form. And that goes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 through, uh, actually through the first verse of chapter 8. And so Matthew 7, 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching uh, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And then we read in the first verse of uh, Matthew chapter 8, when he came down from the mountainside, uh, large crowds followed him. So my point in showing you all that is we can indeed trust the fact that the Sermon on the Mount was one particular sermon teaching given by Jesus on one particular occasion. Matthew certainly 
uh, presents that as the case. And people within the early church period, mind you, would have taken it as that. They wouldn't have read through Matthew chapters 5 through 7 and concluded, oh, this must have been uh, a compilation of a number of different sayings of Jesus that Matthew made to sound like one particular narrative discourse. Uh, D.A. Carson a former professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's actually a very well-known uh, theologian. He co-founded the Gospel Coalition with Tim Keller. Uh, but D.A. Carson, he adds to this, he writes, quote, the introductory and concluding brackets around the five discourses do not belong to any clear first century pattern or genre that would show the reader they are merely artistic devices and not the real settings they manifest manifestly claim to be. It is remarkable that each conclusion sweeps together all the sayings of the preceding discourse under some rubric such as when Jesus had finished saying these things. And of course, we saw that at the end of Matthew chapter 7. D.A. Carson writes that the introductory and concluding formulas were not recognizable as artistic devices is confirmed by the fact that for the first millennium and a half or so of its existence, the church recognized them as concrete settings. This is not a surreptitious appeal to return to pre-critical thinking, but a note on the recognizability of a literary genre. So that's what D.A. Carson has to say about this and a number of other conservative and scholarly Bible students would agree. So the Sermon on the Mount, we in faith are accepting it as trustworthy, but many Bible students who have studied the way books and documents were written during that time, during the early church, have concluded that we can trust the Sermon on the Mount as being authentic. And so now let us examine for a little bit some of the interpretations that have been popular for the Sermon on the Mount within recent years, okay, within, um, actually not within recent years, I'm sorry, within some of them have been uh, popular within recent years, and I'll actually mention a couple of those. Um, but let me give you a brief survey uh, that stems from the beginning of the church age throughout history. Okay, um, A lot of literature has, written, uh, has been written about this when it comes to the many different interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, in fact, there was a study that was done and that was released um, within recent years that suggested that from the beginning of the church age, there were at least 36 different interpretations that have developed on the Sermon on the Mount over the many years of church history. So there is a, an abundance of information on this, and I'm going to go ahead and list out six popular ways of interpreting the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, then we'll go over the position that we accept here at Riverview Church. So one popular view that has been popular over the years sees the ethics of the sermon as not being relevant for our present age. Now, why is that? Well, again, the Sermon on the Mount presents to us, as I've gone over, kingdom ethics. And there are some people that adamantly hold to the idea that the kingdom of God has not yet been uh, established on earth. Last week, we went over the different views concerning the kingdom of God, and we talked about those who are of the traditional dispensationalism position, the traditional dispensationalism view. And those people believe that since the Jews did reject the Messiah, as we've gone over, the kingdom has been postponed. 
Now again, I presented to you guys last week the progressive dispensationalism view, which is that, yes, the earthly kingdom has indeed, according to that concept, been postponed. However, spiritually, the kingdom of God is on earth now, and therefore the kingdom ethics of the Sermon on the Mount do apply to us today. Um, but traditional dispensationalists, they don't even hold to the idea that spiritually the kingdom of God is on earth now and we're a part of that kingdom right now. And so they completely reject that and they suggest to us that no, these kingdom ethics that are listed in the Sermon on the Mount are ethics that will only be for the most part carried out by followers of Christ during the kingdom age after the Lord returns during his second coming. So that's the traditional dispensationalism view. The ethics are not rele relevant to us today, but they will one day be relevant to us. Another popular view over the centuries uh, originated in the uh, Middle Ages, and this one's kind of interesting. And that view suggested that these high standards of moral living articulated by Jesus, which we get in the sermon, were meant mainly for people who were called to higher offices in the church, okay? So those who have truly just devoted their lives to God, all right? Clergymen, missionaries, uh, the apostles certainly back, you know, in the book of Acts and whatnot, people who have just completely sacrificed all of the time and energy that they have to the Lord, those are the people that the Sermon on the Mount applies to when it comes to the ethics that we get there. Uh, so, you know, pastors like myself, okay, or other people within ministry, vocational ministry, um, or elder positions and whatnot, people who have been called to those types of positions, those are the only people who have to worry about the kingdom ethics in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, within the pastoral epistles, okay, and this is just a side note, but of course you could always look up uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3 and also uh, Titus uh, chapter 1. And within those sections of scripture, we do get qualifications uh, for people who have devoted their lives to uh, church ministry and to uh you know, just uh, just that that type of uh, living, okay? Um, and so, uh, pastors, Bible teachers, missionaries, people within church positions, elders, deacons—they absolutely are expected to be held to high moral standards. Um, but we don't necessarily at Riverview Church take the position that the sermon ethics are just primarily for people who are in pastoral or ministerial positions. That's certainly the case, but those aren't the only people that the Sermon on the Mount uh, pertains to. Uh, a third position was presented by Martin Luther. Martin Luther, he's a pretty popular guy within Christianity and certainly within Protestantism um, when it comes to his influence. Uh, but he had a very famous position when it comes to interpreting the sermon. He suggested that the Sermon on the Mount serves the same way the law functions for Paul within the Pauline epistles, and that is to make one aware of their sinful state and thus then compel them to cry out for God's mercy and submit before his throne in repentance, okay? Now, if you read the Pauline uh, letters and uh, you read through specifically certain sections of the Pauline letters, uh, Romans chapter 7 would actually be a good one in regards to this. When Paul is talking about how the law made him aware of his sinful state, you know, he was trying so hard to follow the guidelines and the moral statutes of the law, 
Uh, but the more he tried to follow those guidelines, the more he would notice himself slipping up. Okay, so uh, many within uh, Protestant thinking uh, take Paul's words to mean that the law has served for people over the generations as a way to make them aware of their sinful state. The more you try to follow the statutes of the law, the more you are aware that you're in need of what? A savior, right, grace, that's correct. And so Martin Luther, with that in mind, he took the Sermon on the Mount um, to be pretty much the same type of idea as the law was for Paul. Um, these are incredibly intense ethical principles that we get here. I mean, they're intense. We're going to go through them um, in the coming weeks. And so Martin Luther concluded, well, these are just impossible for us to abide by, at least to the fullest extent. So thus, this is simply there to remind us that we're in need of a savior. And I'm going to go ahead and just say, and this is a side note, but in my own life, you know, reading through the Sermon on the Mount and the principles that we get there, and of course reading through other passages of Scripture that encourage godliness, that go over the statutes that the Lord expects us to follow. In my own life, oftentimes I do read those passages, and there's a twofold effect for me. On the one hand, I do feel more compelled to be obedient to God's word and to live in godliness when I read through passages like the Sermon on the Mount Ethics or other passages in the Bible that encourage godliness. On the one hand, I absolutely do feel more encouraged, strengthened, and compelled to live out such principles when I read through convicting passages in the Bible. But then on the other hand, okay, secondly, at the same time, I'm always reminded by the fact that though I'll try hard, I'll never be completely perfect, and I'm still in need of a Savior. Okay, so Martin Luther, he approached the Sermon on the Mount just from one lens, and that was the lens of a sinner. Oh, it's just there to remind me that I'm always going to be a sinner and I need God's grace. Okay, he approached that from one lens. I would encourage us to approach the Sermon on the Mount from two lenses, okay, what I just said. One lens, all right, that does remind us, yes, we won't live up to these to the fullest extent, and thus, Thank you, Lord, for the grace of Jesus. But then the second lens we should look through is the lens that does tell us, no, the Lord, as children of his, does expect us. He does expect us to follow godliness and righteousness and walk in the footsteps of his son, Jesus Christ. A fourth uh, interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount that did become popular over the years was made popular through the Anabaptist movement. The Anabaptist movement. The Anabaptists. Now, we're not going to touch on this too much right now. Uh, in the coming weeks when we get into passages specifically here like loving your enemies, turning the other cheek, uh, you know, giving your enemy your coat and so forth. We'll get a little bit more into exactly the, the leaders of the Anabaptist movement and how they sort of interpreted these scriptures. Long story short, I'll just summarize it here. They took the ethical principles in the Sermon on the Mount so literally and so at face value to the point where they encouraged their followers within the Anabaptist movement to be full-on pacifists, okay? So turn the other cheek and all that and so forth. They took that so literally to where they restricted and they prohibited their young men 
um, from, you know, serving within the military, okay, serving within the armed forces, you know, back at that time, um, but you understand the point. And they, uh, you know, people, there are some Christians actually to this day um, who may not even be part of the Anabaptist movement, but are part of other little denominations that grew out of that, um, who still take the pacifist uh, approach. Um, and you don't get many Christians like that, you know, nowadays out there, but some of them who you'll come in contact with, they'll tell you, oh, no, I don't believe that Christians are to join the army, the military. I don't believe that Christians should join the police force, okay? I've heard some Christians who take this position when it comes to interpreting the ethical principles on the Sermon on the Mount. Because if you join the police force, you're going to be using force, okay? You're going to be using, you know, you got weapons. Sometimes you do have to fight, you know, and, and defend and whatnot. Um, well, the Anabaptists, they took that very, very, very uh, seriously. And mind you, and this is a side note, if you ever want to counter that, you could always point to the book of Romans, um, where Paul the Apostle says, the Lord has ordained certain people to carry the sword and to be armed, and the Lord does uses those people to exercise judgment upon the ungodly. So God has ordained some people to be in law enforcement and so forth. Um, a fifth view when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount is a view that um, interprets the ethics within the sermon as mandatory if one wants to truly become part of the kingdom of God. So this is an interesting legalistic position. And this became popular actually within the early church period from what I understand. Um, and it held for a number of centuries. But this is the idea that if you want to truly become a born-again Christian, and you want to one day truly be ushered into God's millennial and eternal kingdom, then you have to, to the fullest extent, follow all these ethics that we get in the Sermon on the Mount. And so, in many ways, it's sort of like a works-based salvation view. And of course, here at Riverview Church, we reject that. And then a sixth position, and this is the position that we take here at Riverview Church, is known as inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated eschatology. This more or less co coincides with the progressive dispensational view, the idea that spiritually the kingdom of God is here right now, um, but the future earthly kingdom won't be established till Christ's second coming. But spiritually, since the kingdom of God is here right now, as believers, the Lord expects us, to the best of our ability, to follow the ethical principles and statutes that Jesus lays out for us here in Matthew's chapter. Chapter 5 through 7. Since the kingdom of God is here spiritually now, and since we're members of that kingdom, and perhaps more importantly, we're representatives of that kingdom, all right, we're shining a light in a dark world, we are, to the best of our ability, follow in the footsteps of Christ and live out these ethical principles that we get here. But the full full consummation of truly living out these ethical principles to the perfect extent, that won't occur until the Lord does come back and establish his eternal kingdom. So we're operating on an already not yet paradigm, and that is the position that we're taking right now. So the statutes and ethics we get in the Sermon on the Mount, they indeed apply to us as believers. We are to follow them. The Lord expects disciples of him to 
to follow the ethics that we get in the Sermon on the Mount. And with that in mind, the early church fathers regarded the sermon ethics as being applicable to all believers in this present time before the return of Christ. In fact, there was actually no other section of scripture, interestingly, which was found to be more quoted or referenced by the early church fathers than that of the Sermon on the Mount. Isn't that amazing? So men like Arrhenius, Tertullian, Justin Martyr, okay, those are familiar names when it comes to early church history. Uh, Bible students have observed that these men, and of course more, they absolutely advocated for their uh, uh, congregants within the early church days to follow the principles that we get here. And so with that in mind, let's go, again, let's go ahead and get into the beginning of these principles. We're going to start with looking at the Beatitudes. In uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, starting from verse 3, of course, but again, I'll set it up. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right. Now, the Beatitudes mean blessed. Okay, and there's a lot that you can talk about when it comes to the Beatitudes. They're not just the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount, but in many ways, the Beatitudes are also a genre within Scripture. There are other passages in the Bible that are, in essence, Beatitudes, all right? Beatitudes mean blessed, and there are a number of other passages in the Bible that start with, blessed is the man or woman who, da-da-da, okay? A very notable one is the beginning of the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 1, at the beginning of Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, uh, nor stands in the presence of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law does he meditate day and night. So that is one example of a beatitude. Later on, we're going to see an example within the epistles of another beatitude that we get within the scripture. So we do get a number of different beatitudes in the scripture. They are a genre, if you will, or a literary device um, in order to uh, get a principle across uh, that the authors of scripture would sometimes use. Um, and in this case, of course, the true author of scripture, Jesus, is using it here within his sermon to teach his followers about the kingdom. So the word beatitudes mean blessed, okay? Now, what does that mean? All right, what does that mean? Blessed can evoke a variety of meanings. A uh, popular way of interpreting uh, the word blessed here in verses 3 through 12 is to have it mean happy. 
all right, happy. Commonly within Greek and Hebrew of that time, the word blessed, when people in literature would use that word, they meant it to mean happy. So blessed is this person. In other words, happy is that person. Uh, so in here, in the case of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we read then in verse 3, happy are the poor in spirit, uh, or that down in verse 6, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, there is certainly truth, okay, to the idea, the idea that those who live out the Beatitudes will be people who are overall happy and satisfied in their everyday lives. There is some truth to this. Yet it is still not the best way, however, to understand the word blessed. And Bible students have gone back and forth over this when interpreting the Sermon on the Mount over but for the most part, the consensus within conservative biblical studies is that it is much better to understand the word blessed, which is the Greek word makarios, as meaning God blesses, okay, instead of happy is the person. So with that in mind, verse 3, God blesses those who are poor in spirit. Verse 4, God blesses those who mourn. Verse 5, God blesses the meek and so forth. So this is telling us that the Lord will bless. There is a special blessing from God above for those who emulate the principles, okay, and the qualities that we get from verses 3 through 12. But again, the one that God blesses in this life will indeed be a truly happy person. Okay, let's not forget what happened within the Gospel of John in John chapter 4. There's a very famous narrative where Jesus sat down in Samaria uh, by the well, and the Samaritan woman came over to him, and uh, they were talking a little bit. They started chatting it up, and then, of course, Jesus eventually told the Samaritan woman, he pointed to the well that they were at, and he said, hey, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. And then Jesus said, indeed, the water I give them will uh, become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then one extra thing, Jesus said a few verses later on down in John chapter 4, he told the Samaritan woman as he was explaining these things to her, he said, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are all for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Okay? So he says First, he says, everyone who drinks this water will thirst again, but the water that I give you, that water, you will never thirst again. And then later on, he says, the time is coming, okay, and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. True worshipers. So in other words, Jesus is saying all nations. So what is Jesus telling the Samaritan woman? He's telling her that, the kingdom of God is here. He said to her, a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers, in other words, Jews and Gentiles, okay, those who are true sons of Abraham are those who are sons of Abraham from the heart. So the time is coming and has now come. The kingdom of heaven has now commenced, Jesus is telling the Samaritan woman, and thus true and satisfying living water can absolutely be found 
now at this very present time. So those who live out kingdom principles, those who are abiding by the principles of the Sermon on the Mount will be blessed by God, and those who are blessed by God in the kingdom absolutely will never thirst again. They will be happy, okay? They will truly be happy and satisfied in this life. Now, looking at the Beatitudes again that we went over, if you notice, there are eight separate distinct Beatitudes that we get here, okay? And here's an honest question. Are the Beatitudes eight separate distinct types of Christians? Okay, that's something to think about. Um, are these eight different types of perhaps uh, spiritual gifts okay, that different people have? So in other words, um, there are some who are meek okay, within the body of Christ. There are some who are merciful. Okay? These are eight distinct types of Christians. These are eight distinct uh, spiritual gifts perhaps. So have some people been blessed with the gift of being uh, merciful while others haven't? Okay? That's the first question that we have to ask ourselves. Now, within 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we do go over that there are gifts of the Spirit okay, that the Lord has reserved for different members of the body of Christ. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, particularly Ephesians 4.11, Paul the Apostle lays out the fact that there are different offices that different people within the body of Christ have been called to. There's the office of teaching, there's the office of the Apostle, and so forth. So there are indeed different spiritual gifts within the body of Christ, and there are indeed different positions that each of us have been called to, okay? Um, and Paul the Apostle, by the way, he says that the different offices in Ephesians are there to, quote, equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. So there are different gifts for different purposes, and there are different offices that we've been called to in the body of Christ for different purposes, and hopefully all of you would expect me to come to the conclusion, of course, that the Beatitudes are not eight distinct spiritual gifts or offices within the body of Christ, okay? Especially consider verse 6, all right? We can't suggest that only some people within the body of Christ should be hungering and thirsting for righteousness, all right? That's something that all of us should be hungering for. All of us should have the desire, the drive, the motivation to live righteously and to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and live out the ethics that we get within the Sermon on the Mount. Um, also, I would like to draw your attention actually to Ephesians chapter 4 again. It's funny, a little bit after Paul the Apostle goes over the different offices within the church in Ephesians chapter 4, he then goes over the importance and necessity of righteous living. Okay, so this is something that we are to do. All Christians are supposed to hunger and thirst after righteousness. He says this, and this is towards the end of his letter, by the way. He says from verse 29 in Ephesians 4, do not let any unwholesome talk uh, come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Those who sin against the Lord are grieving the Spirit of God. Uh, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, um, brawling and slander along with uh, every form of malice and uh, be kind and compassionate to one another and forgive each other just as Christ has forgiven you. Um, 
And by the way, that also, that final principle echoes one of the Beatitudes, verse 7. Uh, Blessed are those who, mer- who are merciful, for they will be what? They will be shown mercy. They will obtain mercy. That's right. Um, so we see here, okay, uh, when it comes to the principles that we get uh, within the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes section in chapter 5. These are eight qualities that all disciples of Christ should be seeking to emulate within the believer's walk, within their Christian walk. Um, now, if you look down in your Bibles again, all right, again, there are eight qualities that are mentioned here from verses 3 to 11 in Matthew chapter 5. Okay, I'm sorry, actually, verses 3 uh, through 12. Uh, each verse that we get here from verses 3 through 12 uh, lists a separate quality, um, actually, except for verses 10 through 12. Um, verses 10 through 12 touch on the same quality, uh, which is that of being uh, persecuted for spreading God's kingdom. But again, these are eight qualities that as Christians we should be seeking with the Holy Spirit's help uh, to emulate. Um, But now let's talk about the blessing that is promised here. Again, we have come to the conclusion that blessed refers to God's blessing upon us, all right? So God promises to bless those of us who are merciful, okay? Those of us who are meek, which we're going to go over what that means and so forth. But the question is, is this a present or future blessing that we're dealing with here? Is this a blessing that we're going to get in this present earthly life that we're living in? Or is this a blessing that will only be reserved for the future eschatological consummation when the Lord comes back and we get our glorified bodies and live happily ever after with him? All right, that's certainly going to be a blessing. But is that what this is talking about, only future blessing? Now, it's important to first clarify that the Beatitudes, when it comes to the blessings and the fact that God will bless us, they very much do echo things that we get in other portions of Scripture, all right, including that of future eschatological blessing. There are passages within the Bible, particularly within the New Testament, that speak to us of the fact that we will be blessed, all right, if we endure the present sufferings that we're going through, and that blessing is indeed a future eschatological blessing that will be given to us when we cross over the finish line, okay? In fact, within the book of James, James articulates this in the form of a beatitude. Turn with me to to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and uh, he starts with the famous passage, and we'll look from verses 2 uh, through 4, and then we're going to look at um, afterwards verse, uh, verse 12. Uh, but he starts out, and this is, mind you, at the very beginning of his epistle. So that tells us that the church that James was writing to, they perhaps were dealing with some tough times. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face many trials, because you know that the testing of your faith develops what? Endurance, perseverance. 
Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And then he goes on, he gives more detail, but then down in verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, in verse 12 there, do we get a word that is very familiar and correlates with the Beatitudes? Right, blessed. Blessed is the man. So right here, we're getting this genre, this literary device of beatitude. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. And then James tells us that the man who has persevered under trial, he will receive something. And it says that he will receive the crown of what? The crown of life. The crown of life. Now, the question is, what is the crown of life, and does it pertain to the future or not? Well, to get that answer, interestingly, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to get a very fascinating correlation here with what James wrote uh, in James chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, looking specifically uh, at verses uh, 24 uh, through 27. Verses 24 through 27 of uh, 1 Corinthians 9, and that's actually the uh, uh, very end of chapter 9. But Paul the Apostle says, starting from verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a what? A crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Okay. So here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul the Apostle he mentions a crown. And he gives a detail about a crown. It's a crown that's going to be given to us as a prize, all right, after the uh, completion of what Paul's describing as a race. Um, but it's a crown that will do what? It's a crown that will last forever. It's a crown that will be for eternity. And Bible students, of course, are of the conclusion that Paul is talking about eternal life specifically. He is utilizing the imagery of a crown, which actually would have been common back at that time, to describe the gift of eternal life that all of us are running towards as we're running the race of life. So the crown that is given to us, it is the crown of eternal life. Now, the question is, is this crown that Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the same crown that James is describing from uh, within James chapter 1. Now that's a fair question because these are two different authors, right? These are two different apostles. Are they both thinking of the same thing when they think of a crown, okay? Well, James, his crown, he actually gave it a description. Here Paul just called it a crown. He said a crown that will last forever, but he just gave it the title of a crown. James, he called his crown what? 
the crown of life, the crown of life. And the word that James is using there when he says life, James is without a doubt referring to eternity, okay? Eternal life. He's not talking about earthly life. He's talking about eternal life. That is the crown that God will give to us after we're finished running this oftentimes very tiresome race um, of life. And uh, Kurt Anders Richardson, he's a uh, professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, he writes here, quote, for the promised reward, James used the exceptional term, the crown of life. And within the Greek, the crown is Stephanos, the Stephanos of life. The present life is characterized by the testing of every child of God. This testing is much like the disciplining to be endured that is described in Hebrews 12, 7 through 13. According to James, the poor, the poor endure the troubles of their poverty. The rich endure their temptation to trust in their wealth rather than in God alone, and therefore to be double-minded. Those between the two extremes are tempted by their desires and rationalizations, uh, to imitate the wealthy. These lifelong tests are relieved at the end of life with the reward of divine life. In the meantime, each is to pursue genuine love for God that issues in the true religion. And that comes from Kurt Anders Richardson. He's a professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, if you're interested in looking up more of his work and his commentary material. Um, but here we see then, we see that within James, and also echo echoed by the language of the Apostle Paul, we're being given the description of eschatological reward, okay? We're running the race of life, this earthly present life, and spiritually we're submitted to God, and in the end we will be rewarded, and that reward is eschatological. It won't come until we cross over the finish line, and that reward is eternal life. And within a Eternal life, of course, within other passages of scripture, we're told that there are heavenly rewards and such. Okay? So here within the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, the question is: does the Beatitudes, do they echo these principles that we get in other passages of the New Testament? That there is eschatological reward for kingdom Christians, for disciples of Christ who are living their lives for Him? And the answer to that is yes. The Beatitudes absolutely echo eschatological themes, particularly in, if you read verses 11 through 12 of Matthew chapter 5, this is the final section. Remember, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of stuff against you. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward where? Great is your reward in heaven, in heaven, okay? That very much echoes the beatitude that we got at the beginning of James in James chapter 1. So the beatitudes absolutely are affirming to us and are telling us that there are eschatological blessings at the end of the finish line. And that will be, perhaps in many ways, depending on how you want to look at it, the primary way that God blesses and rewards his children and his disciples in this life. But that is not to say that the blessings of Matthew chapter 5 don't at all apply to this current life, okay? Just as the kingdom of God is here to an extent presently, but not here completely eschatologically, the blessings of the Beatitudes are still indeed to be experienced partly 
in this current life. But the full extent of our blessing as kingdom citizens will reach its full consummation once we cross over the finish line into eternal life. And so with that in mind, if these blessings we get here in the Beatitudes, God blesses these types of people, if this blessing from God will partly come presently in this current life before its full consummation in the future life, the question is, how does God bless us in this current life? More particularly, how are the Beatitudes telling us that the Lord will bless us in this current life? Well, we need to look at the type of blessings that are actually mentioned here, first of all. And they might be a little bit vague, but they do give us an idea of how we have to interpret this. For instance, in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be, what does it say? It says they will be comforted. Okay, Uh, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. There's much more of an eschatological undertone to that one. Uh, But blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, in verse 6, for they will be what? They will be filled, okay? And then, of course, another one I'll just mention, verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And obviously, that one's pretty easy to understand. The mercy that they will be shown is mercy from who? From God, from the Lord, from Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let me just quote real quick to you John Stott. He was a famous British theologian, and he writes here, It is plain from the rest of Jesus' teaching that the kingdom of God is a present reality which we can receive, inherit, or enter now. Similarly, we can obtain mercy and comfort now, and become God's children now, and in this life have our hunger satisfied and our thirst quenched. So we have to really grasp this. These present blessings of the Beatitudes that are ours to experience now presently, okay, all pertain to what we experience when we have fully given ourselves over to the Lord and are allowing him to guide our steps and are allowing him to guide our steps. This will become more clear when we examine a few of these specific Beatitudes, okay? But right now, we're looking at the overall picture here. And what's important for us to take away is that these particular Beatitudes that we're getting will be experienced by the spiritually mature believer, okay? One who has fully given themselves over to the Lord in God's plan for his or her life. So one who has fully given themselves over to the Lord and the purposes of the kingdom of God. We read in Proverbs, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will do what? He will direct your paths. You see, those who live like this will be those who are comforted, verse 4. They will be shown mercy, verse 7. They will indeed be filled, verse 6, okay? And remember, on that note, Jesus told the Samaritan woman that if she drank from this living water, she would never thirst again, right? She would be filled, And then those who have trusted the Lord with all their hearts, as we read in Proverbs in that wonderful passage, they will indeed see God. Okay, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. There are some in the church today who can't say, perhaps, if they've ever seen God. Perhaps they've never made, actually, an actual choice to believe on God and to give their hearts over to him. 
Perhaps they have, okay, but they've then pushed their relationship with him to the sidelines. You know, God's never been an actual priority in their life, and so they've never seen him working in their lives, okay? You've perhaps talked to some people um, who you knew who were friends of yours who were believers, and they would maybe be discouraged, and perhaps you prayed for them and tried counseling and ministering to them, but they would say things to you like, I don't understand, you know, I, I don't see God working in my life, and my life has just stayed the same way, and you know, I, I don't, I don't, prayers aren't being answered and, and anything like that, and it's one of those things where, well, are you making time for the Lord every single day? or at least every week? Are you spending time in the Bible? Have you put God's purpose for your life front and center? Are you praying regularly every day or at least a few times a week? Are you truly seeking God? We read in the book of James, draw near to God and he'll do what? He will draw near to you, okay? So there are some people who haven't purified their lives yet it says right here blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God it's one of those things where there are some people who haven't seen God yet because they're not even letting God within their life they're not even letting God within their space they're not even letting God within their heart and in Revelation 3:20, Jesus said behold I stand at the door and knock if any man opens the door I will and supper him and he with me. There are some people who haven't seen God because God is standing outside their door and the door is shut to him and they haven't opened their door yet to the Lord. And that passage in Revelation chapter 3, mind you, that was to the church of Laodicea. So that passage was not a passage being directed towards unbelievers. That was a passage directed towards who? Believers, Christians, people who weren't putting God first in their walk with him. Obviously, that didn't have any bearing on their salvation, right? But still, the Lord was disappointed with them because they had responsibilities, kingdom responsibilities. And so, the blessings of the Beatitudes that we experience in this life pertain to the strength, assurance, sanctification, and overall guidance that the Lord bestows upon those who are living in submission to his will. And it's one of those things where, remember, though, even though these are primarily spiritual blessings that will be stowed upon us presently in this life, what we're getting here with the Beatitudes, keep in mind that the spiritual and the physical often overlap, okay? Oftentimes, it's one of those things where spiritual strength is what will give us mental and emotional strength. And the doctors tell us even that mental and emotional strength is what will often give you actual what? Physical strength. So the blessings we get here in the Beatitudes, they are primarily spiritual. But if you want your life, even materially and just with everything happening in your life, if your life is a mess, if you want to clean your life up, start with cleaning up the spiritual side of your life. That's where it starts. 
That's where it should start. And oftentimes, the Lord will bless even materially and physically those who have spiritually submitted to his will. And the only reason why I say that, I know Christians suffer, but we do get a number of actual examples within the Bible of people who submitted to the Lord, and though they did suffer, though they went through a lot as they were living out ethical principles of God, the Lord still provided for their needs and he sustained them to where he was able to, they were able to live out the purpose and plan that God had for their life. I would encourage you to go home and read the book of Ruth. She would be a very good example of someone who emulated truly these ethics that we get here from verses 3 through 12 in Matthew chapter 5. Okay, Ruth was somebody who was poor in spirit. We're going to go over what that means. She was somebody who mourned. Blessed are those who mourn, okay? At the beginning of the book of Ruth, Ruth is mourning with her mother-in-law, okay, and her mother-in-law's other daughter-in-law as they were mourning the death of all of their husbands, okay? And so Ruth was one who mourned with people. And then, blessed are the merciful, they will be shown mercy. Well, Ruth was someone who was incredibly merciful, if you read through the book of Ruth. She was very merciful to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She didn't have to be that merciful to her, but she was. And as a result, if you read through the book of Ruth, did Ruth eventually have mercy then shown to her by the Lord? Absolutely. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And so Ruth would be a good example of someone who did get her physical needs provided for her by the Lord as she was mainly submitted to principles of following God's ways. That's why Jesus told his disciples, mind you, within the gospel narrative, seek first the kingdom of God and then all these things will be added unto you. Okay? And Jesus was talking about our present earthly provisions. Okay, he was talking about, don't worry about tomorrow, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. Consider the birds of the air. Okay, they neither, they neither sow, nor reap, nor store in barns, and yet your heavenly father does what? Feeds them. And so if your heavenly father is willing to provide for you, or I mean provide for the birds, then how much more would he be willing to provide for you? Okay, those who are falling after his ways. And so let's spend just a couple of more minutes right now at least getting into some of these uh, principles, these qualities that we get here in the Sermon on the Mount uh, in the Beatitude section. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, okay, the poor in spirit. Now, a big question, does this refer to financial poverty or spiritual emotional poverty when Jesus is saying the poor in spirit. We get a clue actually when it says in spirit, the poor in spirit, and that's not referring to the Holy Spirit, okay? That's referring to human spirits, right? You know that expression, well, how about you lift your spirits, okay? Um, those who are poor in spirit are those who are, 
are, are just, they, they're desperate. They know that they have nowhere else to turn to but the Lord, okay? Now, in many ways, however, Jesus was referring to actual poor people. At least he was using poor people in this case as his example. Because back at that time, there were many people within the lands of Galilee and Judea and so forth who were financially uh, poor. They were living in poverty. And those oftentimes were the people who spiritually were completely reliant upon God. Because oftentimes if you're in that type of state, if you're financially in poverty and whatnot, you're going to be looking to God a lot, right, for provision. So Jesus is using that picture of poor people to communicate a principle that applies to all of us, not just those who are financially struggling. All of us need to have this principle applied to us. We need to be poor in spirit. In other words, we need to be completely reliant upon the Lord for everything. We have to understand that we are nothing and God is everything. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are always looking up for God. Now, Ruth would be one talking about Ruth who was both financially poor, but again, that caused her then to become spiritually poor, reliant upon Yahweh in all things. And furthermore, those who acknowledge their spiritual poverty and start the journey towards submission to God, right? You've realized that you are nothing. You need to be reliant on God for everything. People who have started that journey of true submission to the Lord are those who will then become spiritually rich, spiritually rich. So to be spiritually poor means that you've realized that you have nothing. You can't rely upon your own wisdom, your own means, and your own resources. You are spiritually poor, okay? And you need to start a journey of being completely reliant upon the Lord and in submission to his will for you. And those who start that journey will then become spiritually rich. Revelation 2.9, when Jesus was writing his letter to the church at Ephesus, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. He was talking about earthly poverty, but then Jesus says, but you are rich, and that's in parentheses in Revelation 2.9. So I know your tribulation and your poverty, but in parentheses, you are rich. So Jesus is saying there, I know financially you're in poverty, but spiritually you're rich. Okay. So the first steps towards spiritual richness is to realize that you are spiritually poor, okay? And you can't rely upon your own wisdom and resources in this life. You need to devote yourself fully to the Lord. And theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is the reward that comes with it. And this is referring to both presently, they are members of the kingdom and they are going to be living out kingdom purposes, those who acknowledge their poverty spiritually. Um, but then they also, as they've submitted their lives to the Lord, they've recognized that they are just going to be reliant upon him the rest of his life. Those types of people will then have the uh, blessing of the future eternal kingdom that one day will commence. Um, and then we're going to go over uh, a second one, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, this is an interesting one, a very interesting one. There are two views when it comes to what this means. Blessed are those who mourn. 
Some Bible students have taken this to mean one, those who mourn after their own sin, okay? Uh, Or two, those who mourn after the flawed state of humanity, all right? And we'll just take the position that, for the most part, both of these positions are true, okay? You could have both of them at the same time. Those who mourn are pretty much those who are mourning and who are crying after the fallen state of this world, which has affected the world in general and our individual lives. So those who mourn are those who are just crying out, just in anguish over the the sinful state of the world and how that's affected them individually as well, okay? Uh, We live in a fallen world. All have sinned and have fallen short of what? The glory of God, okay? And when Paul says the glory of God, interestingly, that's a reference to the state that was present in the, uh, the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they were made in the image of God, as we all are, of course. But the fact that they were without sin yet, Bible students will tell you they manifested the glory of God. It emanated from them in such a way as is not the case with us currently. So that's what Paul is actually invoking when he, sends all, when he says all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And so we live in a fallen state. We have fallen short of God's glory. We have lost the way things were supposed to be in the Garden of Eden. And so as believers, we are to mourn, okay? We are to mourn over that fact. We are to mourn over that reality. We live in a fallen state. It's affected the entire world, including our individual lives. But praise God.